Amen. It's good to see. Well, I see three of you. All right. Now I can see. I see more of you. Go ahead and turn, if you will, to John chapter 20. As you're turning there, uh, Daniel came in my office the other day. and He's looking at a book and it's at last name Greg, the author. And he's like, did you write this? I'm like, no, my dad did. And he's like, what's it about? I said, I have no idea. I haven't read it. I, I have like a, this list of books I'm going to get through. By the way, kudos, Tennessee. Awesome. Yesterday. I knew I'd see a Tennessee shirt here today. I knew it. Walking in. One of my dad's favorite authors was uh, uh, an author named John Updike. And one of his novels was called Roger's Version. And it's a reworking of themes that were found in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Some of y'all had to read that in high school. Uh, but this, in this book, it's, it, it contains an argument that ensues between a jaded theology professor and a young fundamentalist who is bent on proving the existence of God. And the professor asks the, uh, the young man who he believes the devil is. And the young man says, the devil is doubt. And I love the reply of the professor because it's both clever and scary. He says, funny, I'd have said that doubt is, or the devil is the absence of doubt. He says, that's what pushes people into suicide bombings and setting up concentration camps. Doubt may give your dinner a funny aftertaste, but faith goes out and kills. And the truth is, and Mark Buchanan points this out, that if you mix doubt with either faith or pride, either concoction is toxic. Either concoction is toxic. I had a, many years ago, I mentioned this, this church that I had pastored that was 90% uh, military and the base closed down. And when I got there, it's just like 14 people. And one of the assets that we had was a sign out front. And it was one of those three-part signs, had the name of the church and the logo, and then an area where you could change the letters. But unfortunately, it was made of that corrugated fiberglass, and it had turned yellow. And on both sides of the sign, they had written, God heals. Well, I'm not making this up. The letters at the end of it got pushed together, and it looked like when you were driving down the street that the church was saying, God hells. So, that, so I went out, I bought a new piece of, you know, brand new white uh, PVC kind of backdrop and, and, and started putting up signs. Now, I was a young guy, so I was kind of in your face with these signs and they were a little confrontational and blunt. And, uh, you know, I'm not like that anymore. I'm really subtle and reserved and laid back, as you probably noticed. And, and so one night I get this letter from this, this guy, right? And he's angry. He says he's angry at the church and he's thinking about buying property on the other side of the street to put up his own sign. Well, number one, Pepsi owned the other side of the street, so they weren't going to sell it to him. But number two, you know, my dad always taught me the only bad publicity is an obituary column. So I, I thought that would be great. You know, we'd have a kind of a sign war and it would get a lot of attention of the church. It never happened. But he said a couple of things that got me thinking. He said he doesn't go to church because church is in his heart and that he was very spiritual and he liked the teachings of Jesus and that Jesus' teachings boiled down to seek happiness and love others. Now, maybe this was Jesus something, but this is not Jesus. Um, he said there was a negative aura around the church that was keeping people away. And being young and blunt, I responded, I think you're confused. That's probably just the dust from our newly expanded parking lot from, from all, the, all the growth we're having. Uh, but I guess we foolish mortals who attended church there didn't perceive the negative aura. But then he said this. He said, being saved isn't about following Jesus. Well, obviously, he was a brilliant theologian, so I wanted to continue the conversation. I actually cut and pasted his words so that I'd remember them. He said, to be saved is to love yourself and know you, when you ask yourself, am I doing things that make me happy? You can answer yes. 
That's actually a pretty good close definition of Satanism. But ask yourself the question I ask myself. If this man had truly found his peace, his salvation, his nirvana, then why was he writing, and I checked, a small town church at 1.19 in the morning telling them that their signs constantly frustrated them? The truth, boys and girls, is that he had doubt. Doubt isn't something we have because we're Christians. Doubt is something we have because we're broken human beings separated from the source of our confidence. So with that in mind, look with me at John 20, beginning in verse 19. You probably know this passage, but hopefully we'll be able to glean something and mine something uh, deeper today. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Watch how many times he says that, by the way. After he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side. I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Pray with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, open our eyes. Lord, there is so much you want us to see of you. So much still that we have to be prepared for. There is so much that the shaping and molding that you as the potter need to do in our lives. Father, we are not yet citizens fully recreated and reformed for your kingdom. So, Father, we submit ourselves to your word, to your spirit, to the body of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us more of Jesus, show us how we can follow him more closely, show, him how we can, show us how we can reflect him more perfectly. We ask these things in his name. Amen and amen. So we look at the story, we need to recognize two things. Number one, Jesus was not condemning skepticism. He was the one who told us, consider the cost. And skepticism means to examine something in minute detail. I actually saw a comic this week and he was talking about his testimony. And he was sharing it that he was an alcoholic and an atheist. He really was very anti uh, the idea of God. And he came across a man who had been a very successful businessman, uh, had made millions of dollars, had liquidated his assets, and had decided he was going to use the millions of dollars he had to just go be a stand-up comic. And this one man said, you know, he wasn't very good, but he said, I became good friends with him because as a wealthy man, he had access to all the best golf courses. <laughs> one day when they're out on the golf course, this man began talking about his faith, and, and so this comic, you know, began, I don't believe that. I, 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 I'm an atheist. I don't believe that. And he said, so you've read the Bible and, and examined it. He said, no. He said, well, then you're not an atheist. You're a moron. Not wanting to lose his golf privileges, <laughs> he continued the conversation. What do you mean? He said, well, an atheist is somebody who has examined not only the claims of Jesus, but all the major world religions, has examined them in fine detail, 
and has come to the conclusion that they are simply untrue and rejects them as such. He said, you, on the other hand, want to circumvent the intellectual process and just reject the idea so that you can walk in, in agreement with what you already want to believe. He said, that's intellectually lazy and moronic. And he said he couldn't argue with him. He couldn't argue with him. See, Jesus isn't telling us not to be skeptical, not to examine something. But Jesus is saying that when you receive something that has the capacity to push you away from what God wants for you, you have to make the, de the decision to reject that. Now, you go to the, the very front of the book and you see the first temptation and what did it center around? Doubt. Did God really say? You go to the end of the book and Jesus is talking about the seven churches that many scholars believe represent church ages, but certainly they're written to us as Christians. And when he's talking to the church in, in Pergamum and Thyatira, he's warning them against false teachers. We call them influencers in this day and age. One was a woman named Jezebel, probably not the Jezebel from the Old Testament, but who had that same spirit. Another, he said, you're listening to the teachings of Balaam. Obviously not the Old Testament prophet Balaam. They, I, I don't believe those teachings were written down. But Jesus is, is warning them, you're allowing voices to speak into your life that are pushing things away. Now, interestingly, he says to the church of Pergamum, I know where you live. Now, that sounds a little scary, right? I mean, Jesus, I know where you live, right? But, but what he's saying is, I know what you deal with. I know what your culture's like. I know how many false things are going into your ears every, every, every day. But the truth is that God has given us the body of Christ for a reason. We need us and each other. And Hebrews 10 says, as you see the day approaching, gather together even more. The, the, the need for meeting together and gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ becomes more pronounced as we see the day approaching. So that's absolutely true. But also God has given us His Spirit. He's given us that to be able to, to, to know whether something is right or wrong. We can discern whether something is, is of the Lord because Jesus said, Thy word is what? Truth. I am the way, the truth. And there's a lot of things that demand you need to accede to this. You need to agree with this. I was talking to a guy just yesterday at the men's breakfast with a Vietnam vet. Come from a military background. My family uh, is army and and he shared with me, he said, you know the worst thing about, about coming home from, about being in Vietnam? And I said, what? And he said, coming home. So the way we were treated. And I said, you know, I use that all the time. I said, because now if you were to get on social media and put something anti-soldier, it would blast you apart. But in the 70s, that was accepted. On the other hand, in the 70s, if you had advocated for gay marriage, you probably would have been fired from your job. Culture constantly shifts in what it believes is right and wrong, and never apologizes for the, for, for the mess that it leaves in its wake. I bet back in the 70s, remember when cocaine wasn't addictive? Yeah, how'd that work out? Culture says one thing, and when it, when it destroys lives, they never apologize, they just move on. Jesus is calling us to receive truth. Satan is trying to instill doubt so that we don't walk in it. The second truth I see here is that Jesus' words to Thomas are not to be taken as an endorsement of blind belief. I don't know if you know this, but the, the author of Peanuts, Charles Stoltz, was a strong Christian man. One of my favorite ones uh, of, his, of the shows was The Great Pumpkin, because as a theologian, I love this, this idea that faith in faith is not going to produce anything. It has to be rooted and grounded in truth. Just because Linus believed something didn't make it happen. 
And I see this in the evangelical church all the time where we want to just elevate faith above everything else without making sure that the foundation is rooted on what God said. See, had Adam and Eve answered correctly, did God really say yes? He really did say. Had they grounded themselves on what God said, they wouldn't have gotten into trouble. But it was that doubt that the devil was using to bring them to a place of separation. The first temptation centered around doubt. And Jesus, like I said, speaking to the churches in Pergamum and Thyatira at the end of the book, he warns them about listening to voices that will speak things into your life that will draw you away from God. I look at what happened in the life of Jesus because sometimes we think, well, you know what, God, if you would just, if you would just basically prove it, right? If you would just perform a miracle, if you would just do this work, Voltaire said if he saw a miracle happen in the public square in the presence of many witnesses, he would choose to disbelieve his own eyes. And that was true of the Scriptures. In most cases, when God worked a miracle, it didn't draw people to Him. It pushed people away. You go all the way back to Exodus, and the people see the thunder and lightning, and they see the presence of the Lord on the top of the mountain. And what do they say to Moses? Speak to us yourself, and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we'll die. The Bible says they stayed at a distance. In Luke 5, 4, Jesus is, is on the seashore. And he produces this great miracle where he fills up their nets with fish. And what does Simon say? Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. In Matthew 12, there was a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue. And the, the, the Pharisees, looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus says, if one of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. It was completely restored, as sound as the others. But the Bible says the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. God proving it, God doing what we want him to do, is not the answer we need. That's what our flesh tells us. That's what the devil tells us. But the truth is that we need to identify what Jesus is saying to us and choose to walk into, in obedience with that if we want to see the produce of faith. I believe that God is still a miracle-working God. What I don't believe is that we have the right to demand miracles as a precursor to obedience. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this other stuff will what? Follow. That comes behind obedience. Thomas wanted to make that come before obedience. Lord, if you show up, if he just lets me put my hands in his, in his side and in his wrists, then, then I'll walk in faith. Then I'll believe. And Jesus had to teach him that the response, my Lord and my God, must come first. As we look at this, this story, we need to understand that there's a few dynamics here that that Jesus is giving us in his word and in this story because the Bible is, is written down not as a kind of a historical record but as a warning to us, as instruction to us, don't make the same mistake. It's amazing to me because it would have been so easy and most ancient religious works did this where they kind of prettied up the lives of those who are writing the stories. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible shows us what they did warts and all so that we know don't make the same mistake. So let me share a few things that I see here about the danger of unchecked doubt. 
And the first is found in two words in this passage that sum up the first problem, unless I. And that is that doubt elevates proof before obedience. All of us who want intimacy with the Father, who long and crave His presence and want to see the supernatural become natural for us and to be able to, to testify the, to the effects that following Him produce in our lives, the problem we will face is when we want to see these things done conditionally or responsively. When we put conditions on God or when we say, we'll respond, we'll do this if you'll do that. Now, most of us like to kind of see ourselves as the heroes, and we, we identify with the second half of verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. But the truth is that most of the stories of Scripture are stories of failure. Most of the stories, most of the life stories of Scripture are spiritual failure. Every other king of the kingdom of Judah after King David when the kingdom was divided, every other king was a failure. Every king of the nation of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, after the divided kingdom, after the time of David and Solomon, every single one was a failure. My family and I were just in our devotions last night looking at the story of Jehu, and Jehu is raised up by God, and a prophet comes to him and anoints him, you will be king over Israel. And he starts great. He gets rid of all the ministers of Baal, and you think things are going great, but then it says, but Jehu hung and clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. In other words, the golden calf idols at Dan and Bethel, he continued to worship. I, I don't want to shake up the, you know, the, 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 upset the apple cart. I don't want to mess with people's perception. I don't want to have to go into some whole thing where I'm restoring everything back to the worship of God like it was at the temple. So we're just going to continue to worship these calf idols. And the Bible says that he missed the mark. We could have been talking about him as one of the great kings like Josiah or David. Instead, he's just another in a long line of people who had opportunities. We know about Jonah. We know about Judah. We know about the ones who abandoned Paul and the ones who, who deserted him because they were in love with the world. We see over and over and over the Bible telling us just because you start well doesn't mean you'll finish well. Some of y'all started really bad. Some of y'all are, are clinging to stuff right now, but like we just sung, we're not at the end of the story. And what the Scriptures are teaching us is that God wants us to reject the things in our lives right now that are holding us back from wholehearted commitment to Christ. Guys, we will not stand before the Lord and, and be comforted with it by being able to say, but God, I went to church. God, I did some stuff for you. You know who said stuff like that? Go read Matthew 7. But Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that for you? We even cast out demons in your name. You know what he says? I didn't know you. You didn't obey me. You didn't hear my voice. See, the truth is, Thomas wasn't really asking unless I. He was actually demanding unless you. Jesus, unless you show up and show me those scars... And let me touch them, I'm not going to believe. Even though everybody I know is telling me they saw you. Even though the women said they saw you. And those two on the road said they saw you. Even though the 12 said they saw you. Yeah, nope, nope. I'm not going to listen to it unless I, which is really unless you. And how many times do we say stuff like, God, you know what? I'd love to serve you unless you take care of these bills. I'm just too distracted to walk the walk. Unless you heal my child, I can't minister effectively. Unless you save my spouse, Lord, I would love 
to plug in like you're calling me to. I can't be a witness at work unless you fix my boss. God, unless you get me out of this situation, I can't focus on prayer. God, unless you bless my finances, I can't tithe. God, unless you grant me more appreciation, I don't think I want to keep serving. Unless you says to the Lord, you have to earn the right to be obeyed. Now, we never say that, right? We would never say that. That's why the people grumble against Moses. They didn't want to say it directly to God. But Scripture says they're not grumbling against you, Moses. They're grumbling against me. They're just using you as a kind of a convenient middleman. Imagine you, you have young kids and, and you, um, you hire a babysitter, right? You say, well, take care. And you tell the kids, listen to what he tells you or she tells you. And you come home a few hours later from dinner and that babysitter's all tied up and, you know, bound and gagged with duct tape and the house is a mess. And your kids say, well, we didn't disobey you. We disobeyed the babysitter. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And that's how God looks at us when we say, God, unless you, we're really saying, I'm not going to obey you until you put me in the position of being able to kind of filter out what I think is right and what I think is wrong. Second truth is that doubt demands security before surrender. See, Thomas got to that place where he crossed over from unless you to my Lord and my God. Now, the my Lord and my God should have come first. The, the statement of the Lordship of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus should have come first. We all, we all accept the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Now, I think there's great historical evidence to that, to that fact. But I've never physically been able to put my hands in his, in his wrists or in his side. What we have to do is say, my Lord, in other words, the one who has authority over my life, and my God, the one who has the character and nature that produces that authority. I don't believe Thomas was like the so-called skeptics of our day. I, I think he truly wanted to believe. And I don't think Jesus is, is, uh, is, is getting angry with those who have with the same problem or struggle with the same issues. I, but I, I think he sees a difference between a heart that doesn't yet understand and a heart that seeks to shield itself from what it doesn't want to know. And sometimes, like we talked about last week, we hesitate to bring things to the Lord because we're afraid of the answer. I remember a young woman coming to talk to me. And, and she had some issues she wanted to talk through, and some of them dealt with, with, with me personally. And as she walked out of, of the room, she said, you know what, that went really different than I thought. And, and I said, what, what do you mean? And she said, I really, I really thought it was going to go one way. Like, in her mind, it was like, I already know what you're going to say. Have you ever thought that? I don't want to go talk to them because I already know what they're going to say. And she's walking out going, wow, you didn't say what I knew you were going to say. And she was surprised. And sometimes we're afraid to bring things to the Father because, man, I already know what he's going to say. I already know what he's going to say. But the truth is, he might say that, but he might also give you something deeper. He might also speak comfort to you. He might also give you the path to victory. Yes, that's like when Jesus is talking to the church. He says, look, I, I see this stuff going on. And I see the good you're doing, but... I also see some issues here, and I see some problems here. And then he gives the solution. This is how you fix it. And sometimes we're so afraid of, of, of hearing the diagnosis. Look, man, I wouldn't go to a doctor if, if I knew he was going to say, 
The diagnosis is terminal and there's nothing we can do about it. If I knew that 100%, then what's the point? But we go to the doctor because, yeah, we'll probably get the diagnosis or, or, or we fear we'll get it. But we hope we'll hear, but there is treatment. And that's what God says to us. That young man who passed our church sign, he'd rather argue with the wit or lack thereof of the pastor of the church that confront the truths of the Son of God. He'd rather make up stuff that he thinks Jesus said than actually get into the Word and find out what Jesus said. And many of us would rather try to force God's hand than really listen for His voice and bow before His Lordship and say, it is well. Not just desirable, but it is well with my soul. See, a lot of us, we have our checklists of necessities. I think of when Jesus was talking to one of them comes and, and says, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me go first bury my father. Now, it's not likely. That phrase doesn't mean there was a dead body laying around and he had to go physically dig the hole and bury him. What it meant was his father was probably sick at the end of his life. He wanted to settle all the affairs. Let me go bury my father. In other words, let me take care of the stuff I need to take care of so that I have security. Like that comic who sold all his, his, his interests, his business interests. And then now I can do what I want to do and I don't have to worry about this finance part. Seek ye first. Another one comes to him and Lord, I'll follow you. But Jesus says to him, foxes have holes. Birds of the, net, of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay in his head. In other words, are you really going to be comfortable following me without that security blanket of what you think you need? And a lot of times we say that, look, look, let me just go and take care of my affairs or let me go make sure I got a roof over my head. Doubt says, God, change my situation. Give me security so that I don't have to worry, so that I don't really have to. Man, some of us, we were really playing with fire a few years ago singing Oceans. Spirit, lead me where my faith is without borders. And the Spirit's like, yo, really? You really want to be led where your faith is without borders. And if the Spirit had said that to some of y'all, you'd be like, yeah, never mind. I'm just going to raise my hand, say marshmallow ten times, and <laughs> pretend I'm singing along. When we tell God, give me what I've convinced myself I need, and then I'll bow before you. Look what we just did. If you give me what I need and, and to feel a sense of security, and if you put my fears of not having what I need in charge of this show, then I'll call you Lord. But then you've just made you Lord so that you can call Him Lord. And that doesn't make any sense. And the only God that would agree to such an arrangement isn't God. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 6.33 is that the active faith of the believer must precede the active provision of the Lord. The active faith of the believer must precede the active provision of the Lord. If you don't believe me, go back a few or go back to the, or go to the next chapter, Mark 6, 5, where the Bible says Jesus could not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That doesn't mean God's power was limited. It means that God has ordained that the way His power is activated in our lives... It's through faith. Satan knows if he can inject doubt, he can reduce power. The third truth is that doubt requires fairness before faith. Instead, we need to be okay with the fact that life is not fair. Well, it's not fair, God, that they all got to see you, Jesus. You, you breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, I really wanted to preach that verse right in the middle of COVID. <laughs> We're just going to breathe on each other and receive them. See, see how many people freaked out. I didn't. I didn't. But that's the way my mind works. I'm, I'm praying that God will fix it. But 
Look, some of us have to go, homes to, home, to, go home to, to homes broken by divorce. Some enjoy blessed marriages. Some see their children faithfully serving God, while some see their kids walking in confusion or rebellion. Some get sick, while others seem to live their whole lives in good health. I don't know. I talked about my, my friend Bill who buried his 13-year-old son. Why did, why did his son die of cancer and mine are all with me? Or, or my neighbor Jim, just two doors down, great Christian wife, died young. My wife is healthy. Or maybe I could turn it around and say, hey, it's not fair that I had, that, you know, my, my kids had two childhood friends stricken with cancer and, and yours didn't. I remember Bill telling me one night, I, I, I was living at, you know, right on the property of the, the church. We had a bunch of apartments over here and a bunch of houses. So uh, we had, praise God, won a lot of those families into the church. That's the great thing. The bad thing is that I had to be careful when I went out to take out the trash or I was going to do a counseling session. And so, so you know, you're kind of sneaking out and throw the trash in the bin. Hey, pastor. Hey, man. Funny, funny seeing you here at 2.30 in the morning. But, but, but I remember going out. And I was taking out the trash and Bill was, uh, Bill was working on his truck or something. And we started talking about his son and his son's condition. And he said, you know, I'm just so grateful to live in Massachusetts, just outside of Boston with all the great medical care. And he said to me, you know what? I realize if I'd lived in some countries, I may have buried two kids by now. Now imagine that. You're, you're struggling. You're watching your, your child be consumed with cancer. But you're also looking to the truth that, you know what? My struggles are not unusual to this earth. And there's a lot of people in places all over this world that are dealing with that and a lot more. I was reading a book in my devotional time that included a collection of stories and one of them made me, me think about Horatio Spofford who wrote It Is Well With My Soul. And many of you know the story. But he was what we'd call in today's vernacular a worship leader. He was an attorney and he had some business to settle. And he was going to be a part of a crusade in Europe. So he sends his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him. And um, while he finished it up, his, his, his affairs and, and the ship that his wife and daughters were on was, got collided, collided with another ship and it sunk. And he rescued his wife, barely alive, unconscious. And she sends him a telegram with just two words, saved alone. His four daughters had died. Saved alone. And he sits down and he writes these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Not fair, not desirable, but it's okay, God. It's okay. You're not shaping me for this world. You're not preparing me. You're not molding me for this life. The people who would tell you, just pursue your happiness. Pursue what makes you feel good in this world. They're lying to you. They're dangerous. The people who say, just mind your own business. These are people getting their marching orders from hell. Because everybody you lock eyes with is going to live eternally somewhere. And they're either going to be prepared for a kingdom that is perfect and where everyone is healed and whole and well where there's life eternal and there's no more tears and no more mourning or no more crying, or they're going to be stuck in this existence forever. Increasing darkness, increasing separation, nothing good. 
Imagine as the stars flicker out in this universe one by one, you're separated from God, you're separating from any, any physical pleasure, and eternity has only just begun. Jesus saw that, and He came to rescue us, and He raised up the church, and He didn't say, go save people. He said, go make disciples. Shape them. Teach them. Mold them. And you have a very real enemy who wants to stop you from doing that by injecting doubt into your life so that you are ineffective at what is called the great, in other words, the preeminent commission. The command above all others in terms of our ministry responsibility. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what? All that I have commanded you. And baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. He doesn't say names, by the way. The name referred to the character and nature. Immerse them in the character and nature of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you as you do this. The devil comes along and, did Jesus really say that the church is supposed to do that? Here's an idea. Why don't we just focus on singing and studying and listening to the preacher? Why don't we just focus on being nice, pleasant, unobtrusive people? Why don't we just focus on being really good citizens and patriotic and set that example? Because that, guys, doesn't prepare anybody for the kingdom that is to come. There is going to be, literally, a new heaven and a new earth. And I want to live there forever. And I want to make sure that everybody I lead is there as well. Everybody I lock eyes with, everybody, look, you can reject it, but I'm not going to let you do it easy. I'm going to make you so mad sometime, you're going to want to leave. But I challenge you, don't ask him, I'm mad at him for saying it. Ask yourself, is it true what he just said? Is it true what he just said? Some of the things that have angered me the most where I'm sitting there listening and I'm burning up, it's because somebody's stepping on my toes and they're hitting my sin. And I have to back up and say, Lord, are you using this vessel? Because God can speak through any single vessel he wants. Look, I don't know why some people hit the lottery and some people's kids get sick. Why some people suffer. You know, I, my, my wife's sister hit the lottery for $1.45 million after taxes. Within five years, they were broke. She and her husband had divorced and he shot himself. Which was fair. The suicide of the lottery. I uh, knew a woman growing up. It's my mom's uh, best friend's daughter. Her name was Sherry. She had MS. She lived her whole life with a partially functioning brain and a completely non-functioning body. She couldn't wash herself, feed herself. But she was aware enough to know what she was missing. She was very angry with God. And I wish I could tell you if you did such and such, then so and so would happen. Look, I can tell you that you're a lot less likely to break your leg if you don't jump off a roof. But I, can t I can't tell you that if you never jump off a roof, you'll never break your leg. You see the difference? See, there are great things to be gleaned and great blessings to be had by incorporating biblical principles in, in my life. I, I am so blessed that my children are, are all following the Lord and serving the Lord. I'm so blessed that even though Ruth and I grew up in severely dysfunctional broken homes, that we have a, just an awesome, great marriage and, and just love each other deeply. What I can't tell you is if you do everything right, you're never going to suffer. 
I can't tell you that if you adopt all the biblical principles, yes, they'll bring favor into your life. And yes, they'll bring blessing into your life. But Jesus also said, in this world, you will, not might, I wish he'd said might. <laughs> you will have many troubles. I believe God's, or obedience to God prevents a lot of suffering. But I can't promise that if you work hard and protect your honor and integrity that you won't die at 50 years old. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us, listen to this, in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we have ourselves received from God. Now, I notice what he didn't say. He didn't say God will comfort us by removing our troubles. Again, I wish it said that. God will comfort us if we just pray hard enough. We just live right. We're just in the Word, right? We're just faithful in church. If we're faithful in our giving, then God will comfort us by removing all of our troubles. Jesus never said that this is a fair world. One neighbor cries out with a doctor's terminal diagnosis while the other neighbor cries out, we won the lottery. My kids, not my youngest, because they saw what I said to my oldest, and so they didn't bother with that. But my oldest, when they would come to me and say, but dad, that's not fair. <laughs> you want fair? They would, do you want that brain tumor? You want to live a, in a broken home? You want to see your parents physically abusing each other? Because growing up in ministry, they saw all this stuff. I wish they hadn't, but they saw people who abused each other people who tore down the church and the pastor. They had to grow up seeing all this stuff. So when I would say, do you want fair? <laughs> no, we don't want fair. <laughs> See, Thomas accepted the rebuke of Jesus and the comfort of Jesus and ended up his, on his time on this earth with the ultimate statement of faith and victory. The man we call Doubting Thomas, which I hate. Poor guy. I mean, one, one minute, right? And he gets... <laughs> he was run through with a lance at Cormandel in the East Indies. Preached to his murderers while he was dying and never recanted. I saw Jesus rise from the dead and you can have new life in Christ. They hated him. They rejected him. They killed him. But he ended his life with the ultimate statement of faith. Nobody saw him coming into heaven and said, oh, hey, doubting Thomas. <laughs> Not after that entrance. God doesn't promise us fairness, guys. He promises us power. He promises his presence. Power to overcome. Power to show the world and the principalities of the spirit world the reality of a spirit-filled walk. By the way, the enemy doesn't think what we have is fair. You go back to Isaiah and you look at how Satan fell. I will be like the Most High. He causes us. God creates us. By the way, first creatures, the first creatures that were created to rule over anything besides God was us. God created the elders the angels, the living creatures, and never said, rule. He creates man and says, rule. We'll go over this more deeply, but how Satan became the prince of the earth, he didn't become the prince of the earth as a reward for rebelling against God. He became the prince of the earth by usurping our position, by getting us to fall, just like the devil tries to get pastors to fall into sin so that they're disqualified from their position. He got man to fall. Even Jesus called him the prince of this earth. He said, now the prince of this earth is fallen. Jesus says something, it's true. He said, I will be like the Most High. God looks at us fallen creatures 
and says, you will be like Jesus. Satan said, I want to rule and reign. And God says to you, you will rule and reign. Paul said, we will judge. In other words, have authority over angels. Anybody feel qualified to judge angels right now? <laughs> I didn't think, if anybody raised their hand, I was going to invite you to the altar. But I received that by faith. That God created me for that position. And every demon in hell says, that's not fair. We got kicked out for that. You get elevated to that position. So here's what I want to ask. As we get ready to pray. Are you sitting personally on an unless I, which is really an unless you? Are you sitting, is there something in your life that hasn't been committed to God? God, if you would just do this, then I would serve you. A lot of people say, I want to serve the Lord. I want to give to God like He's called me to give. Why don't we? Because we put something in our lives that allows us to feel comfortable in our righteousness, just like Thomas did, unless I say, all I'm asking for is to see. All I'm asking for is to touch. And God says through His Son, you need to first start with my Lord and my God. So is there something in your life? And just be real with God. He already knows it anyway. He knows where you live. Is there something in my life? God, if you would just save my spouse, then I... God, if you would just take care of these bills, then I... God, if you would just send me the perfect relationship, then I... Unless you do this, God, I won't do this. And if we're honest with God and we'll go to Him, we might hear some things we don't want to hear, but I promise you, He is a God who has the remedy. He has it and He's willing to share it with you. We might think so less of ourselves, and I find that that's a common problem. I wish I could, but I just don't ever see myself walking in that kind of faith. Will you take a few minutes? Come on, let's just stand together. Is this praise team ministers? Will you just take a few minutes and say to the Lord, God, am I doing that? Am I elevating doubt or am I elevating Jesus? And really listen to the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit tells you, yeah, there's an area of your life. There's a place where you're holding back. Let him show you the remedy. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, worship isn't just air passing through our lungs and our lips in the form of a melody. Jesus, you said these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. God, it is true. You are after our hearts today. You love us so much that you won't settle for anything less. I wouldn't settle for a marriage where I just had my wife's time and her body, but not her heart. Father God, I want to do more than just physically show up. I want to do more than just sing some songs or, or even give. I want to yield. And I pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit across this place to move in sovereignty and authority. Let us cry out, my Lord and my God. Let us bow before you. Let us come to you, the great physician. And yes, sometimes that diagnosis will be painful. But Lord, we also know that you provide the remedy. You are not just the physician. You are the great healer. And so, church, if you need to 
come down and bow before the Lord at this altar. Sometimes we need those moments to just cement it. Sometimes we need somebody to just lay hands on us and pray with us. This altar is open. The prayer team is ready. If God isn't calling you to move forward, you're just going to pray in your seat. Don't, don't walk in disobedience if He is calling you to walk forward. But even if He's not calling you to anything else, will you really yield to Him and worship Him and create an atmosphere for His Spirit to move in this place of faith today.